Hello and a very warm welcome to Changing World New Opportunities. I'm Louise Farrand. And I'm Lorna Kennedy. In our second season of the podcast, we're interviewing senior investment figures from Master Trust Pension Schemes. We're asking them to reflect on the investment challenges facing them as DC leaders. What are they excited about and what's keeping them awake at night? If you'd like to find out as soon as a new episode comes out, you could subscribe to our email alert at www.dcif.co.uk and click hear more. Or you could follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at DCIF underscore UK. On with the show. Good afternoon, Lorna. How are you? Hi, Louise. I'm good, thank you. I'm in dreary Edinburgh, but I'm hoping that maybe we'll get a glimpse of sunshine by the time I leave the office tonight. Well, down in Devon, we already have a bit of sunshine and we didn't this morning. So that's honestly, I'm hoping, I'm hoping for you. (laughs) So on today's podcast, we are speaking to Tim Orton, who is Chief Investment Officer at Aegon. Did anything in particular strike you? We just chatted to Tim for the episode, Lorna. What, What did you think of our conversation? It's interesting, Louise. It was it was good to have a glimpse into the CIO role and into a pension provider and how they're thinking. So I guess if you think about it, they're dealing with lots of different investment managers, lots of different asset types. So it was good to get that breadth about what's on his mind and what's on his to-do list. What about you? Yeah, I agree. I liked what he said towards the end of the episode, talking, you know, his clear passion for the climate transition, how important it is, really shone through, particularly in some of his comments at the end. He was talking about his grandchildren and the future that he wanted to see. And I always think it's really compelling when someone brings that kind of personal passion into their working life. And, you know, quite encouraging as well that someone in a position of power like that has this passion for climate and is obviously doing everything he can to speed up the transition. So, yeah, that was really exciting and encouraging to hear. Absolutely. And I I was just going to add to your the points on climate, really, so that obviously they've made a commitment to climate solutions. But as you say, bringing it to life with I'm thinking about what the world's going to look like in 100 years time concentrates the mind somewhat. It does. It does. Well, we won't chat any longer. I will be willing the sun up to Edinburgh and we will hand over to our chat with Tim. Great. Nice to speak to you. You too. So Tim, very warm welcome to season two of the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you, Louise. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks, Tim. Nice to speak to you today. I wonder if we could perhaps start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and perhaps how you came to work in pensions, what your career path has been. Yeah, sure. So I started life as a trainee actuary with a small friendly society. So really getting involved in the mechanics of pensions and other investment-backed products, how they're priced, even dealing with sort of customer queries and complaints, that sort of thing. Moved on as my career grew, got involved in looking at the insurance side of the relationship with an asset manager. So what are the risk controls in the different funds that were being offered to insurers uh, behind the insurer's products, asset liability modeling, those sorts of things. So quite technical actuarial sort of start, if you like, but gradually evolved into more commercial management type roles, ultimately took accountability for investment product lines and their profitability, then navigated through CFO, COO, and ultimately CEO of a mutual fund arm. 
of Aviva, as it was at the time. Then moved back onto the insurance side, ran investment propositions and what became Aviva's retail investment platform business before joining Aegon to then take responsibility back for the investment layer as chief investment officer. So navigated around a few different perspectives, different parts of the value chain, if you like, in running investment-backed products. And now Aegon looking after the £200 billion worth of customers' investments that we've got across a range of different propositions. Outside of work, my wife and youngest of three daughters live just outside of York. So I do spend a bit of my time traveling up and down the East Coast mainline to Edinburgh and London, which is our main office locations. So yeah, quite busy all in all. Yeah, I can imagine. One thing I thought we'd ask all our guests this season is about 2022. What a volatile year it was. Obviously, pension schemes, many had quite a difficult time of it. I just wondered how 2022 was for you and if you'd like to share any of the lessons that you're taking away from last year. Yeah, a tough year for members of schemes because returns were down. And we've got a number of different funds, slightly different allocations for different reasons. But that general base picture is what it means to a member was quite common, really. And I think it's really interesting to think about the different members' experiences and where they are in the journey. Because if you're not close to retirement and using your money, that perhaps matters a bit less. And, And over a longer period, you know, returns might still be good and beating inflation. But those who were looking to take their money in 2022 and perhaps had checked what they thought their pension fund was a few months previous, you know, had quite a rude awakening. So it really sort of opens your eyes to the different experiences and you know, some of the short versus long-term considerations in running funds that back pensions products. Lessons learned. So, I mean, I think we've entered a, a new phase, if you like, in investment markets. We've seen a lot of supply-driven inflation as opposed to demand-driven inflation. That made inflation much higher, perhaps more unpredictable, harder for central banks to control, at least in the short term. So really, it's made us sort of step back and think a bit more about market reactions, what they might be going forward in that different world and the sort of pace and scale of changes in sentiment that drive different market behaviors. And what does that mean for risk? So we've been thinking about that. Also think about diversification. So 2022 was an unusual year in that pretty much all markets around the globe, equities, bonds, everything sort of went in the same direction and unfortunately down. So correlations in returns across different aspects of portfolios and how to try and get some better diversification into portfolios has also been a a consideration of ours. Brilliant. It'd be interesting to hear. I mean, is there anything in particular you're looking at in terms of diversification, any new types of assets, any different asset classes or parts of the world that you're looking at? Yeah. So in terms of longer term investing, we're thinking about how do you potentially optimize growth and manage that diversification and really looking at what's off markets, if you like, so unlisted private equities and how we can potentially blend those in with more traditional asset classes to optimize risk and return. We'll maybe come to that in a minute. I guess the pensions has been In the news currently, there's been lots going on for the last few months, including the mansion house reforms, which I think we'll come back to shortly. But I wonder, I suppose it's picking up some of the things that you've said about 2022 and members' journeys. How do you think about shaping your investment strategy when there's so much uncertainty about when people will retire and indeed how they'll retire and take their money? How do you factor that in? 
Yeah, we recognize there's a range of different behaviors that fit a range of different life positions and life plans for members. And you know, interestingly, if you look at market data, quite a lot of people when they reach retirement, particularly with smaller pots, just take the cash. So there is a, a factor there around liquidity. There's a factor there around risk at the end of a pre-retirement phase. But equally, many people will have a 40-year horizon when they retire or semi-retire. So, you know, growth and inflation matching is also important for those members. So, a single strategy is quite difficult to focus on all of those things at once. And they can, what you might use to meet one objective, you might not use for another. So, default style strategies almost inevitably have to be some sort of blend of those sorts of different considerations that we're looking to factor in. But then choice comes into play as well. So I think it's important that within pension schemes, there are other choices available to members so that if they are very clear that they are homing in on cash, that they have the opportunity to think about their investment strategy as they lead up to that and de-risk from volatilities in markets. But equally, if they're thinking of you know, not using their pension pot for some time to come and carrying on part working or whatever the phases of life to go through might be, that they may need a different solution to meet that need. So I think the engagement side is actually almost as important as the strategy, if not more important, to actually help members think again about what they want to do. Because what they may have selected if they went into a default fund, which most people do, they may have made that choice decades decades before they actually want to use the money that's built up in their pension pot. So active engagement and really thinking through what matches a lifestyle and life choices is is really crucial. Absolutely. It's a default's fine, isn't it? When people are accumulating, it's easier. You know, it's not perfect, but it's easier to suit more people. But once you get to taking the money out and how you're going to retire, then the engagement piece becomes ever more important. Absolutely. Absolutely it does. So I mean one of the things that we are doing a lot of work on as a firm is you know, supplementing the basic wake-up type messages and things that we do in those years leading up to members' sort of selected retirement dates is, is also what other aspects have we got? How can we use our digital infrastructure? Um, we now have a capability called Pension Geeks within Aegon and provides seminars for employers to allow members to understand pensions a bit more because some of the level of knowledge is it's quite low. People working, they may recognize they may have a pension, but actually, you know, the investments that sit behind it is something that many members haven't actively thought about until the point when they're, you know, reaching retirement and having to make some quite complex decisions. So I think that engagement, active engagement and allow people to absorb and try to understand a bit more is really, really critical. Just jumping back down to pension geek level for a second. What's your take on lifestyling versus target date funds? Right. So in some ways, it's kind of cosmetic or operational. They use different mechanics of moving a member through from investments that are designed for growth over a long period to investments that are designed to give a bit more balance and manage some of the risk, recognizing that they may start to spend that money a bit sooner. So you can either have something that packages that up and does that all for you through a target date type solution or have some sort of lifestyling where you step through different versions of fun to get there. But the start point and the end point, you can almost create an identical version of them just with a different mechanic. So I'm probably less of a 
person who worries too much about which mechanical version you use. It's more the start point and the end point are appropriate and back to the engagement that uh, members understand what they're actually invested in over time. Going back to the Mansion House um, speech that the Chancellor gave at the, the start of July, what's your view on the push for more investment into private markets or private equities in particular? And I guess as a signatory to the Mansion House Compact, how will you go about making this happen over the next, or before 2030? Yeah, so... I'm proud to say I was there listening to the speech. As you say, we're one of the founder signatories of the Mansion House Compact. So we've been thinking about this for a while as a, an asset class, as I said earlier, given market dynamics now and how some different markets move together. Actually, it can be an, an interesting way, if packaged in the right way, to bring in different forms of diversification, as well as potentially access new industries, new capabilities, new projects that may give stronger returns. So we're very supportive of the profile, if you like, of that and the benefits it can potentially bring to members in pension schemes. What we're thinking quite a lot about is what makes an orderly market here as it becomes more significant and something that is a more prominent part of ultimately a member's money and that we're you know, managing it really well. So, so how do you do this in the context of risk and return? How do you ensure good customer returns, all of those sorts of things? There's a lot of due diligence to think about to actually create the right balance. These are inherently going to be more complex assets in terms of the traditional asset class, which is daily priced on a market with you know, full transparency. So quite a lot of due diligence aspects of what you select, quite a lot of governance in terms of how you might oversee and understand the liquidity and the, I guess, the forward profile of liquidity of this kind of investment. And cost is also a factor, you know, in terms of the active nature of this is going to change the cost of different investment profiles. So we're expecting there to be quite a few different sorts of solutions that will emerge out of there with different pension funds across the DB and DC spectrum, trying to access it in different ways. But what we're thinking about is how can we create and get access to sort of portfolios of investments of this style? What's our role in selecting partners to run these sorts of things with real focus versus us seeking to do that independently, where you know we may not have the same resources available as a pension provider to to actually perform some of that detailed due diligence that will be required. So the infrastructure to run an orderly market, if we're going to go back to the start of what I'm sort of uh, saying, is something that we're, we're thinking about um, quite a lot. We're also thinking about the nature of, of the different investments and what they can potentially bring. We see a real congruence with this marketplace with our net zero ambition. And actually, a lot of the projects that could be off markets as investment opportunities could be the same sorts of projects that help with the transition to net zero and a real opportunity to invest in sort of green finance that is required to support that transition. So we're really interested in that as well in terms of how we shape forward and using this as an opportunity to further our net zero ambitions. And who says pensions aren't exciting? Eh? There's lots, lots happening. What was really lovely about it, I think, was actually that it was showing financial services in a really positive light, not only in the ability for 
the capital that we've got within financial services to be used to support growth, growth in the UK. Clearly, this is a broader societal benefits, but also yeah, some of those other real world issues that face our members. And if we can actually be investing in the things that will support a transition and support a more sustainable world for our members to live in, again, it's fantastic to be able to be contributing to that. Completely understand and hear all that. I guess what I sort of thought of when I heard about the reforms was it's sort of an interesting change in direction in a way, because it feels as though for a few decades now, pension schemes have been going global in the way that they've been investing. And I guess trustees have been encouraged to look at the widest possible opportunity set, right, in the interests of members. How do you kind of square that circle? Do you think, I'm sure this is something you've thought about a lot. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, our responsibility is straightforward. We've got fiduciary duty to provide the best returns for appropriate levels of risk. And everything else has to be in the context of that and in members' interest. So this important point of the compact is it's not mandatory. It's not forced to be UK investment. Obviously, the Chancellor would love there to be some UK investment. We would hope that there are some great opportunities that are UK investments. But we would still think about the overall portfolio, the right portfolio mix, and the right allocation to opportunities around the globe that would provide that best risk and return to members. Can you maybe bring to life some of the opportunities that might be available as a result of these reforms that kind of weren't available before? Like what sort of things are exciting you when you have been in conversations, I'm sure at lots of very high levels and important meetings, what sort of opportunities are around the table? Give us a bit of a glimpse behind the door if you can. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot in the infrastructure space. There's a real need and opportunity around renewables and the massive growth that there requires to be in renewable energy to meet the world's demand. So we're expecting to find opportunities that support growth in those areas that will help all of the above, isn't it really? It's how do we get the great returns from those over the long term? How do we support that transition to net zero and also support private markets, potentially you know, UK opportunities? We still see there are UK opportunities out there. So those sorts of things I think are really interesting. You can get really quite, think about things in terms of themes as well. So agroforestry, ocean health, there's all sorts of topics now that are real topics that impact the world we live in, impact aspects of the lives of billions of people around the globe, depending on where they live. So I think you can really bring to life an investment portfolio and understand not only the pure investment risk return characteristics of it, but some of those broader social characteristics of what it's trying to achieve. And if you can create that alignment across, that's when it gets super interesting. Yeah, definitely. So when I was looking you up to the head of this interview, I, I saw lots of good, ambitious statements about net zero and the net zero journey. Talk us through where you are on that at the moment and what are you excited about? Yeah, so we've made a really strong start, but it really is just a start, let's be honest. So we've done quite a bit in our portfolios around screening out some of the potential for the most risk or dialing down and replacing limits on potential sectors, industries that might be most impacted by the transition. So that's helpful from a point of a risk mitigation point of view and scenario planning. But on its own, we recognize that does not really change real world outcomes. So that's when I say it's just a start. So stewardship is really, really important. We've been laying out policies and practices around what we expect from the fund managers that we use that sit in our portfolios. 
We have also laid out voting expectations on key issues to start to exert our influence on the underlying companies that we don't get to vote on because we don't hold the shares ourselves. It's held by the fund managers that are within our portfolios. And, you know, our data shows that there's only something like 30% of companies that are on a trajectory to less than 2% world when you start getting into some of the data that's emerging at that kind of level. So there's a long, long way to go and a lot of work to do for companies and to make those changes. And for us, as ultimately a party with influence over those companies, we're looking to really drive that through, drive that through the chain of ownership. So that's a big angle that you know has a lot further to go. But we've put in place some practices over the last couple of years to really start to explore that what influence we can have. But back to the private asset type debate, that as well is unlikely to be enough. That, that we need to actively use our, our capital to sort of put our money where our mouth is in to a certain degree. So we did make a commitment in our climate roadmap to at least 500 million in, in climate solutions. And say the, the private market type investment is where we see real opportunities to achieve this and find opportunities that can make a real positive difference towards net zero. And climate solutions, that could be a broad range of asset classes then. That could be infrastructure or it could be private equity and so on. It could be private equity, debt, infrastructure. It could be a range of what might be akin to the sort of traditional asset classes. Yeah, absolutely. We're looking to sort of explore all opportunities of different forms so that we can meet all those different goals, if you like, of optimizing what the return potential is, broadening out those opportunities, but also having some diversification across them. I'm hearing so much about natural capital, TNFD, biodiversity at the moment. Are these all kind of themes that are hitting your desk as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's almost a new theme coming out every few months, isn't there, to explore. But I think it's fascinating to get, again, it's getting really under the skin of what impacts the daily practices around our economies are having and the consequences of those activities then on, I suppose, what they leave behind them. So, yeah, it's really great to get involved and get under the skin of these sorts of things and then start to think about them in the context of, okay, so if I want to protect this particular outcome, what does that mean? I demand of the change within different industries and then therefore what do I expect my fund managers to do to oversee that and drive their portfolio shape and their voting practices around that? So it's bringing a whole new meaning to running an investment portfolio. I'm almost hesitating to ask this question, Tim, because we've talked about such a wide variety of things. But could you tell us what a typical day would look like in your job? Yeah. So let's bring it back down to earth. Lots of governance. But that's a good thing, right? Because we're looking after Britain's money. We're looking after the public's money. So we need to make sure we're doing that robustly and and being challenged from all sorts of different angles. So I do have a lot of committees. I do therefore do have a lot of papers to review, write, read, challenge myself, etc. So that's a core underpin that runs through the job. Part of that is scrutinizing performance, understanding what's gone well, what's gone less well and why, and any actions that we might need to take as a result of that. That can lead to proposition design. So are the funds we've got constructed as well as they could be? what's evolving in markets and give opportunities for changing those and any new propositions that we might need for different different marketplaces as well. So there's a bit of proposition thinking and design in there as well. And then to maybe round us back off, how about regulatory change? So the regulator 
let's go for the pensions reforms. So quite a lot of new consultations have come out. So that sort of thing keeps the team busy as well. And part of my role is making sure I'm securing the right funding to manage all of those changes and get them implemented robustly and in the required timeframes, which are not always that long when consultations are finished. So there really is quite a range of different types of activities, which makes the role really interesting. But yeah, that's probably the full cycle for you. But you obviously, um, you deal with lots of investment managers. You've got policyholders' money that you you need to be invested in the right way. And as, I say, you, as you said, you've got governance of all of these investment managers. DCIF is obviously a group of investment managers who are very engaged in the DC industry. Would you have an ask of investment managers in general? Ooh, this is like a Desert Island Disc luxury item. I love it, Laura. <laughs> Sorry. How many am I allowed? <laughs> you, get, you get five discs. Is that how it works? Go for it. You can, you can have, have five, five asks. No. Five come to you. That's a really hard one for one ask for investment managers because there's such a diversity of consideration. Um, obviously, managers are set objectives. What we're looking for is smart, creative ways to try to enhance different portfolios within objectives that are set. And so there's been probably a move towards a bit of a herd in some ways in the industry and a, a scaredness of underperforming because it does get punished. So you can understand that. But the risk with that is you can almost drive everything down to pseudo-passive or passive investing. And whilst passive investing can be good to control certain sorts of risks, it can be good to control cost, which is, of course, important. It can also stifle creativity. So I think to not be scared to have creative ideas of how to enhance returns within what are often actually quite broad objectives for pension funds is probably a a suitably broad ask to a suitably broad question. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. <laughs> That's all right. And Tim, final question from me. What's keeping you awake at night? Well, often not much because it's actually quite tiring with this pace of change. <laughs> but no, if I'm honest, I if I step away from it all, I do worry about climate transition. I mentioned my three daughters and the only one lives at home. That's because two have moved away, married with very small children. So I have grandchildren who may have close to 100 years on this planet ahead of them and what kind of world will they retire into when they reach that sort of age so i think it is complicated and again there's the short term versus long term in all of that and you see it around energy investment decisions that are quite topical as we speak today and you know how to manage through the world's needs today for what the world will need to have to support it in, in future. But my biggest fear is, and my sort of what keeps me awake, if you like, is around all of those conflicting objectives leading to inactivity and not solving the problem that nature is telling us we have to solve. Oh, well, that's brilliant. Thank you, Tim. I, I think that's a question that should keep us all awake at night, for sure. And I'm sure it does as well. Yeah, I've got a four-year-old, so it's a similar kind of situation when I think about her living 100 years. Wow, how different will the world be by then? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's scary going back one generation, isn't it, actually, when you think backwards. So if you think forwards for three or four generations, what you take for granted now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it must focus your mind an awful lot. Cool. Well, anyway, Tim, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for your time. 
You are welcome. It's been great to chat. Thank you for listening to Changing Worlds New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. See you next time. Thank you.